Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Presidential candidate, independent Senator Bernie Sanders, was a guest on Radio Curious in 1991, early in his first term in Congress. Over the course of his 25 years as an independent member of the House of Representatives and the Senate, he has consistently advocated for economic reform and social justice. When Bernie Sanders and I visited in 1991, we discussed what he would do if he were president. This interview, recorded by phone from his office in Washington, D.C. in September of 1991, began when I asked him to describe his experience in government. I served as mayor of uh, the city of Burlington, Vermont, the largest city in our state, for eight years from 1981 through 89, winning four two-year elections. And uh, I became, in November of uh, last year, the first independent to be elected to the United States Congress in something like 40 years. And uh, in Vermont, we only have one member of Congress representing the whole state. I'm an at-large congressman. And you describe yourself as an independent socialist, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Independent democratic socialist. How would you describe your political philosophy as being different from that as the Democrats or Republicans, if those names actually describe a philosophy? Well, that's a good point, because I think (laughs) there is some debate as to exactly uh, what kind of consistent philosophy exists within the Republican and Democratic parties, because you have people... Uh, running all over the uh, political landscape in both parties. I think, essentially, my views are based on a class analysis of society. In other words, the questions that I ask myself are, who makes the decisions in our society? Where does real power lie? And who benefits from the decisions that take place in government and in the private sector? And the conclusion that I reached long ago is that, in fact, people who run our nation are by and large very, very wealthy people who have, of course, tremendous economic power. Uh, And at the same time, with their money, they are able to largely control the agendas of both the Democratic and Republican parties. In other words, uh, uh, contribute significant sums of money to the campaigns of both parties, and therefore having a lot to say about the political decisions that take place in Congress uh, or in state uh, governments uh, throughout America. So that, that's essentially the way I look uh, at, at politics, and I think that that analysis is uh, very, very different from, from both the Democratic and Republican parties. Uh, the Republican Party, by and large, and there are certainly exceptions to this, but by and large is pretty upfront in acknowledging that they represent the interest of the very wealthy. Uh, the Democratic Party occasionally talks about representing working people, but I think, and there are, I should point out, many very good people uh, within the Democratic Party, especially, and some within the Republican Party that I work with in Congress, who I think are trying to do a very good job. But I think if you look at bottom line policy, uh, what is happening in the Congress, who benefits from legislation being passed or not being passed, what I think you'll find is that both parties, by and large, uh, end up coming down on the side of the wealthy uh, and against the interest of working people and middle-income people. Well, let's see if we could address some specifics here, Congressman. And if you were President of the United States and had authority to issue executive decrees and change specific policies, can you tell us what those policies would be? Sure. 
But needless to say, I don't want to see a president, not me or anybody else, have that power. We live in a democratic society, and uh, we want to make sure that the policies that we develop, in fact, reflect the interest of the vast majority of our people. Let me just rattle off some of the areas that I think we need some fundamental change. Number one, uh, the first question that we've got to address, uh, which gets beyond any executive degree, that anyone uh, can, can, can bring forth is, why is it that today the vast majority of American people have lost faith in their government and have given up on the political process? That's the most important issue. And your response? Well, let me just say, let me continue on that point. Because even if one could snap one's finger tomorrow and create a good standard of living, a decent standard of living for all of our people, what we still would not have solved is why the democratic institutions in our country are failing and people are not participating. The beauty of democracy, as opposed to, you know, communist authoritarianism or fascist authoritarianism, the beauty of democracy ultimately is that it is supposed to be the people, all the people, who are able to control their lives and determine the future of our country. I think very few people would deny that today, with a voter turnout in our last uh, off-presidential year elections of 35%, 65% of the people not voting at all, 50% of the people voting for president, very few people would deny that tens and tens of millions of Americans, poor people, working people, are saying, the government doesn't represent me, I'm not going to waste my time by even voting. So the first question that I would ask, how do we involve the American people in the political process? How do we make government relevant to them? How do the people themselves determine the future of this country? And how would you do that? Well, I think the answer to that question is to develop grassroots organizations which are actively involved in political activities. In other words, I just returned a, uh, a week ago uh, from Sweden, which to me is perhaps the most impressive government in this world, uh, having gone very far to eliminate poverty and involve their own people in the political process. It is not an accident to my mind that over 80% of the people in Sweden belong to trade unions, are involved in various types of organizations, active in politics, and it's not an accident that that type of government has essentially eliminated poverty, established a national health care system for all of their people, provides free education for all of their kids, has wonderful maternal leave, parental leave type programs, etc., etc. So I think the first question is, how do you get people involved in the process? I think strengthening the right of workers to participate in the process, in their shops, in their offices, in their factories, is one of the areas that we've got to work on. Getting young people involved in their own educational processes uh, is another area. But in other words, getting the people to understand that in democracy, the future of this country is theirs to determine and not a handful of wealthy people. Now, synonymous with this, at the same time, people are not going to be involved unless they see a political movement in existence which is dealing with the problems facing their real lives. And I think one of the reasons that tens of millions of people have given up on the political process is they look to Washington, for example, and they say, hey, you know, what goes on in Washington, what the president is doing, what the Congress is doing, just is not relevant to my life. And let me, if I 
if I may give you a few examples. I'd, I'd like that, but I also want to take a moment to point out some of the similarities between what I have observed in Vermont when I spent uh, several weeks there and here in Northern California. We have a generation of people uh, approximately your age and younger who appear to move, who have moved to these areas from urban areas and are now taking an effective stand in the political arena, as you have done and some of us have here in Northern California. Uh-huh. Well, certainly, and I know, you know, I've been to California more than a few times, and we have worked uh, closely on some issues, for example, with the uh, governments of Santa Monica, California, uh, with Berkeley, California, and so forth. So I, I think I do understand what you're talking about, and it's not just California. Uh, you're going to find pockets of progressive government uh, all over this country. But let me just go for a moment, and, and some of the areas that I think we need a political movement to be fighting for. And I think in the process of fighting for these issues, you're going to be bringing people back into the political process. Uh, number one, at the very top of my agenda, is the issue of national health care. Uh, what is going on in this country today in terms of health care is clearly a national disgrace. The health care system is disintegrating before our eyes. We have over 80 million Americans who either have no health insurance or only partial health insurance. The cost of health insurance is going up 15 or 20 percent a year, making it more and more unaffordable to people. Um, you're seeing a situation in which the United States today ranks 22nd in the world in terms of infant mortality. We rank 12th in terms of life expectancy. Uh, and there were very few people who, who would not acknowledge that the system today is just not working. Uh, my own view is that if we move toward a Canadian-style single-payer system, we provide health care to every man, woman, and child, including long-term uh, nursing home care, without spending one penny more than the $750 billion we're presently spending. Uh, let me interrupt and ask if you feel that your colleagues in the Congress would agree with that kind of program enough to at least begin implementing it. What I can tell you is yes, give you an unequivocal political answer of yes and no. Uh, the good news for those of us who believe in national health care is that the momentum is clearly with us. In my own state, we have been holding a number of public hearings in larger towns and small towns, and, and the outpouring of people coming to these meetings, turnout, has been fantastic. People are outraged with the current system. They want change. I think this is taking place all over the country. But certainly in Congress now, what you're seeing are several important pieces of legislation uh, which, in fact, would create national health care. I'm happy to, 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 to tell you that we have. My office has brought forth uh, a very good piece of legislation which would establish a Canadian-style national health care system in this country. Other people have brought forth other pieces of legislation which differ to this or that degree. Uh, and there is a movement toward uh, national health care in support of that in Congress. On the other hand, I think there is no question in my mind that the Congress is far, far behind what the American people want. I think if you did a referendum today and asked the question as to whether the American people want a single-payer Canadian-style system where they want to continue with the disintegrating system that we currently have, I think the vote would be overwhelmingly in favor of a Canadian system. The people are ahead of the politicians in this respect. How do we get the politicians to uh, come up with the people? You throw them out of office. I mean, I think basically the issue is, and, and this is why I am an independent, why I'm a progressive, why we in Vermont are moving toward a third party in our state, where we have a third party in, in the city of Burlington, is that many of our people, and I think 
many, many Americans no longer believe that either the Democratic or Republican parties are capable of dealing not only with the issue of health care, but with the issue of a progressive tax reform, uh, the scandalous situation that we have today, by which the very richest people have become much richer over the last decade, and yet they're paying less in taxes, while the working class and the middle class have become poorer, and they are paying more in tax. Well, let's address the tax reform, and what is it that you would propose to reform taxes to bring them to a more equitable basis? Well, I don't think it's very difficult. What we have to do is to say to the very richest people, for example, a study uh, recently uh, came out, which was uh, published uh, by the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, using information that came from the House Ways and Means Committee, which pointed out that uh, over a recent 10-year period, the uh, from 1977 to 1988, the income, the real uh, inflation accounted for income of the richest 1% of our population increased by 122%. In other words, they have seen more than a doubling of their real income. And yet, at the same time, uh, the same richest 1% are paying a lower tax rate. They're paying less in taxes on their income uh, than they did 10 or 15 years ago. Now, that is just wrong. Meanwhile, for working people, for middle-income people, they have seen a decline in their standard of living. Their real purchasing power has declined. And if you combine certainly federal taxes, state taxes, and local taxes, uh, you're seeing a significant increase uh, in what they are paying. So I think there is no excuse for that. What's the answer? It's not very complicated. What you need is a progressive tax rate, uh, which essentially says to the rich that they're going to have to stop paying their fair share of taxes. Not very difficult. Senator Bernie Sanders is our guest in this archive edition of Radio Curious, recorded in September 1991 during his first term as an independent member of the United States House of Representatives from the state of Vermont. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Mr. Sanders, uh, if we proceed with the idea of restructuring the tax system, and your analysis earlier in our discussion was that the Republicans uh, represent the vast majority of the wealthy people, and uh, the Democrats, it may be unclear who and what they represent, uh, there's a lot of lobbyists out there who are going to get these elected officials with special interests re-elected. How do we, the people, go about skirting the lobbyists who have the money? I think the, very, the answer to that question is to understand that, that the current system of financing campaigns in this country is totally absurd. Rich people in the year 1991 in our democracy are still able to buy elections. Uh, so I think clearly what we need is major, substantive campaign finance reform, which says that those people who are elected will in fact represent ordinary people and not just the rich. Do you, um, so I, I think that's at the root of that issue. Do you feel that there's support for that and support possibly for oh. term limits among your colleagues? Well, I, do I think that the people of America are disgusted with the current system of financing elections? Absolutely. Uh, do I think the Congress will necessarily respond? No, I don't. What you have is a situation, and this is the important point, no. In my view, the Congress is simply out of touch with the American people. Congress itself is doing pretty well, pretty good. 96% of incumbent members of Congress were re-elected uh, last year. For them, business is just great. What's the problem? Uh, I think people want change, but whether the Congress will open up a political process which will allow challenges 
working people, people who don't represent the wealthy, to get a fair shot at an election, well, we will see what happens. Certainly that issue will be debated. There are a number of members in Congress who understand the absurdity and the unfairness of the present system. They understand that democracy is not well served when rich people buy elections. Will we be successful in fighting, uh, bringing about campaign finance reform? I don't know. Because on the other hand, you have people who love the current system. It works just great. They get all the money they need. They can intimidate uh, just through the, the sheer amount of, of campaign war chest that they had their opponents. So uh, it remains to be seen whether we will pass it. The American people want change. Many members of Congress are content not to do anything. That's always, that is, on many issues, is the case. Uh, the people want change. The people are unhappy. Uh, Congress is content to let the status quo reign. Addressing these ideas as you do to your colleagues in the House of Representatives and perhaps some of those in the Senate, how are they received? You're, you're attacking the underlyings of, of their income, of their livelihood and, and lifestyle. Well, I think I am received in, in, in two ways. Uh, among those people uh, with whom I work uh, and who to a more or less uh, share my political point of view, I am working well. Uh, with those people who, in fact, feel that Congress is just doing a tremendous job, that it's not necessary to bring about change, I think they see uh, the ideas that I'm espousing, and more importantly, the idea that a third party can develop in this country as a real threat. They don't want that. Um, they don't want the large numbers of people participating in the political process, and they certainly don't want to see a house cleaning uh, take place in the Congress, because that's their very existence. Well, then we need to talk about the numbers uh, of the 435 members of the House of Representatives. How many would you say share your point of view as you've been expressing it? Well, uh, you know, I don't think there are any two members of Congress whose views are identical on all the issues. But I would say that on this and that issue, for example, if you talk about national health care, uh, right now there are at least 50 or 60 members of the Congress who are working hard uh, for national health care, and the number will increase. Uh, I would say that, in general, uh, the people who share my views to this or that degree probably are uh, between 5 and 10 percent of, of the uh, Congress. Let's move along. Unless you had other points that you wanted to bring up uh, in your class analysis of... Uh... Well, here's the point. I mean, you see, in the Congress, issues like rich and poor, who controls the country, who controls the media, how does it happen that the United States which once had the highest standard of living in the world and produced the best products, is now rapidly declining, and we're in about 10th place in terms of the wages and benefits that our workers receive. Those are issues that are very, very rarely discussed. Why is it that tens of millions of people don't vote anymore? People don't talk about these issues. And I think the reason that we need a new political movement, the reason that we need working people and unions and environmentalists and minority groups and peace activists to begin to stand together and move away from their single issue point of view to come together into a broad-based political party is that we are not going to change the country, we're not going to change the priorities in this country unless we understand that what the fight is about is not an improved environment, is not better wages for workers. What you are fighting for is power. Who has the power? And right now, the power rests in the hands of very, very wealthy people who are doing very well. The system is, in fact, working if you are wealthy. You have the best health care in the world. Your income is zooming up. You are paying less in taxes. You don't have to worry about the environment because you have a very lovely home, and you can go 
through the slums in your stretch limousine. You don't see them. And but, I think that's, that's the point we've got to understand. But then you're talking also about the corporate control of America, because the corporations have limited liability, and they have the power. A corporation has the same powership, uh, power and ownership rights as does a single individual. Are you talking about changing the, the rights and uh, powers of a corporation? Well, what we are talking about is trying to create a democratic body. And at the present moment, what I would be very content to see in our own country, I would be more than delighted to see take place within, within the next five or ten years, okay, is a government which moves forward to do what certainly can be done, and that is to eliminate poverty. It is a national disgrace once again that when you look at the poverty rates for children, for example, throughout the industrialized world, we are in first place having almost twice as high a poverty rate for our kids, over 20% than, say, Australia, which is in second place. Let me stop you there for a minute, Congressman, and ask what specific steps you would take to eliminate poverty. Well, I think there are two things that you can do. First of all, you know, some people say, well, you can't throw money at at uh, social problems. That seems to be uh, the right-wing line that's now in vogue. Well, unfortunately, that's not necessarily true. When 20% of our children are living in poverty because their families are receiving inadequate income, you know what? More money would help. More money would help and can be generated in two ways. Number one, in the last 10 or 15 years, what we have been seeing economically is the growth of our service industry and the decline of our manufacturing industry so that a significant number, something like half new jobs produced in the last 10 years are poverty jobs. Simply raising the minimum wage, simply demanding that if people are going to be working 40 hours a week, they are entitled to decent wages so that their families uh, are not poor after working would be a step in the right direction. Can I, let me press you here for specifics. One I hear you saying is raise the minimum wage. Uh, do you have other ideas that you can tell us? Well, what I'm su uh, simply suggesting is two things. Number one, millions of our working people are working 40 hours a week and longer. They are working hard, and yet after their work week, they still don't have enough money to adequately sustain their family. Second of all, for those families, for example, single mothers bringing up little children, yeah, society is going to have to say that in America, all people are entitled uh, to a minimal standard of living. How do you do that? And I think you do that in two ways. Number one, the time is now, especially with the ending of the Cold War, with the disintegration of the Soviet Union, we should be talking about substantial cutbacks in military spending and rebuilding America, reinvesting in America. Second of all, as I indicated a moment ago, we should be raising taxes substantially on the upper-income people. If you do those two things, we can generate tens and tens of billions of dollars which can be used to provide well for our people, to make sure that our educational systems are functioning well, that we're putting money into the environment, that we're rebuilding our infrastructure, and doing all the things that we have sorely neglected over the last decade. In terms of rebuilding the infrastructure, are you uh, looking at maintaining the fossil fuel uh, support for automobiles and heating, or do you have ideas about solar and other non-expendable um, uses of energy? Well, I think you're raising a very important question. And let me just uh, broaden that, that point and talk about the relationship between the environment and the economy. It goes without saying that if this planet and our own nation continue 
on the same old path, which is leading to environmental degradation in terms of our water, our food, our air, the ozone layer, rainforest. You know what? There may not be a planet left or a nation left for our grandchildren or our great-grandchildren. Great-grandchildren. So obviously we've got to revise that policy. Clearly, it seems to me, the technology is there in terms of solar power, in terms of wind power, in terms of other sustainable and safe forms of energy that we can break our dependency on fossil fuels, on nuclear power, and on other destructive forms of energy and create a society which maintains a very strong standard of living, but yet at the same time does not destroy the environment. And in doing that, I should point out, we can create many, many millions of new jobs. And here in Vermont, we're going to be holding uh, a conference in a couple of months just to deal with that issue. How can we take advantage of weatherization? Obviously, our climate here is very different than in California, and we are making some progress in our city. But there's no question that we are wasting tremendous amounts of energy. I know that in California now more and more people are thinking and talking about solar battery automobiles. Uh, certainly at this point, technologically uh, and cost-effectively useful for commuter traffic. We've got to begin thinking about that here uh, in Vermont as well. So there's a whole area out there as to how we can develop alternative sources of energy uh, and break our dependency on fossil fuels. There's a, a major issue here in California, and I'm interested in your reaction to it, and that is uh, offshore oil drilling along the California coast and uh, actually all the way up into the Arctic. I'm interested in your position on stopping that and your interpretation or observations of what your colleagues in Congress may feel about stopping offshore oil drilling. Uh, I would be sympathetic to stopping that, and I can't, I'm sorry, I just don't know how it would line up on a vote. I think the challenge that we face, I mean, what President Bush has done that I think we should be we should be grateful for is given us an energy agenda, a blueprint for the future, which is so totally absurd that we can learn uh, from the stupidity of it. In other words, he is talking about an economy which is based on consuming more and more energy, on lowering the standards for the construction of new nuclear power plants, and putting greater emphasis on nuclear power on opening up the Arctic wilderness to oil exploration, and in general, to be saying that what we need is more and more energy consumption. The contrasting point of view, the point of view that I hold, and I think the entire environmental movement holds, is to say, how do we run our society in as energy efficient way as possible? How do we make sure that we are not wasting energy how do we develop alternative sources of energy which are sustainable and safe? Uh, and, and the contrast in philosophies is very, very clear. Uh, and I think we owe the president a debt of uh, a thanks, of gratitude, for bringing forward such an absurd energy policy that it's making very clear to millions of Americans that that must not be the direction uh, that we should uh, move towards. I hope that you may have some ideas on how to do that. And Congressman Bernard Sanders of Vermont, I want to thank you for the ideas you've given us. Well, I thank you very much uh, for the opportunity of chatting with you and, and would look forward to being back sometime. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. This interview with Senator Bernie Sanders was recorded in September 1991 early in his first term as an independent member of the United States House of Representatives from the state of Vermont. 
Radio Curious has over 600 archive editions on our website, radiocurious.org, with new editions published regularly. You may stream, download, subscribe to our podcast service, and share them as you wish. They're all free. We appreciate your thoughts, ideas, and comments about our programs and enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The phone is 707-462-6541. And the address is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. Christina Onestead and Yuko Kodama are the assistant producers. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.